Hello and welcome to Employment Talk. We're here to discuss the HR issues affecting you and keep you up to date with the latest employment news. My name's Jo Mosley. I'm a support lawyer in the employment team and I keep our clients and our team up to date with what's going on in the world of HR and employment law. We've got no Glenn today, but I'm joined by two colleagues to discuss some of the issues HR have to deal with where staff have conflicting beliefs that they're both equally passionate about. I thought this would be a good time to do this as we're in the middle of Pride Month, which shines a light on equality and inclusion of groups of people who have faced discrimination in all aspects of their lives because of their sexuality or, for example, how they present. But of course, this is a HR podcast, so obviously we'll look at the employment law context. So before we get going, can I ask both of my guests to introduce themselves, please? I'm Charlotte Rees-John and I'm an employment partner within the employment team at IM. I also specialise in ED&I. Brilliant. Hi, Charlotte. Hi, everyone. I'm Chris Veldston. I'm a medical negligence solicitor at Erwin Mitchell. And when I'm not doing that job, I'm also co-chair of our LGBTQ plus network, which is called I Am Equal. Thank you. Hi, Chris. How are we? Yeah, good. Thank you. Are you? Yeah, not bad. Not bad. Rearing to go. (laughs) Good. So can I start by asking you both to explain what pride means to you personally? Sure. Well, I think it's important to remember that that Pride originally started as a protest. And it's easy to forget that sometimes because when you see these, you know, bright, flamboyant, colourful parades going through our towns and centres through the summer, um, it can feel like, you know, a bit of a party and a carnival. And absolutely, there there is space for that. But, you know, Pride is a protest or or it certainly was. And um, it was only through people organising themselves and fighting for for change that we have the the sort of the inclusive society and and workplaces that we that we have today. How about you Charlotte? Yeah I think that that, you know that's a really good point that Chris makes and and for me it's about um, respect so it's about having respect for your for yourself and the fact that you deserve to be respected by other people and Mm -hmm. and making that very loud protest or statement demanding that respect. Yeah, yeah. Chris, you mentioned a minute ago the network that you chair. Can you tell us a little bit about that, please? Sure. Well, the networks were set up at Erwin Mitchell could be well over about 15 years ago now. And it's hard to imagine a time when we didn't have networks for our different diversity groups. Um, But we have them now and they are really important part of the business. It's an opportunity for colleagues to come together to have discussions about issues that are affecting them to try and help the organisation on the direction that that it's going on. So it's a really important opportunity for people to to be heard and to be visible. Um, It's a great source of allyship for, for various colleagues. And I joined, you know, I've been I've been a member of I Am Equal since, you know, for as long as it's existed. I'm now co-chair of the group and, you know, we we do a lot of things. We're visible at Pride events. We feed into policies and decisions that are made within the organisation. And 
we also have a role to make sure that we're representing the communities and the clients that that we want to attract to our business. So um, there's lots of different directions that that we go in as a network, and it's a hugely fulfilling role. Um, lots of challenges and and really helpful, important discussions that we have along the way. Brilliant. Thank you. Well, I think, Chris, you're going to know the answer to this question, given that you've given us a little brief history lesson to start off with. But do you know when the UK had its first Pride March? I think I know this date pretty well, mainly because from time to time we do have quizzes within our network. And this is a question <laughs> that very often comes up, and I believe ah. it's 1972. Yes, it's 50 years. So it's 50, it's 50 years ago this year. Um, I didn't realise it had been going that long in this country, actually, but I, I did a little bit of Googling in readiness for this podcast. And I discovered that the Royal Mint have a commemorative 50p piece, which is coloured in the in the pride colours. It's not going to be in general circulation, but people can buy it as a, you know, as a souvenir if they want. Have you seen those? I think I have seen the 50p. I'd love to get my hands on one. They, they look absolutely brilliant. And it, it, it's great to see our institutions like the Royal Mint um, commemorating the, these types of events in this way. And it just shows how far we've come really as a society in that 50 years. I mean, if you imagine what the first Pride event would have looked like in this country to compare to, to how mm. it is today, it's important to remind ourselves, you know, just how far we've come. It's a completely different um, world that, that we're in now. Um, and, and one I think we'd all agree is for the better. Yes, absolutely. And I'm guessing you're a regular participant, are you, on Pride marches? Is that right? Absolutely. Um, Erwin Mitchell is present at various Pride events across the country. Um, I was recently at Birmingham Pride at the end of May. Um, we had glorious weather this year, which is always a bonus. It's not always guaranteed to be good weather on a May Day uh, bank holiday weekend, but it, it was great this year um, and really added to that 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 sense of celebration that, that Pride can sometimes be. So, um, yes, and we've got various network members attending different Pride events across the country. This year we have banners, we have specially made Owen Mitchell uh, Pride t-shirts that we're very proud to have. And so, yeah, look out for us if anybody's going to Pride across the UK, as I'm sure you'll see us. Brilliant. I must say, I've never been, which sounds dreadful, actually. Have you, Charlotte, have you ever been on a Pride Event. Yeah, it, it, historically I have. Manchester has a, has a very uh, um, well-established, well-celebrated, spectacular uh, <laughs> march, I would say. Um, and so historically I have been, but it's something that I'd really like to do with my three young girls. Mm. So um, they're yeah. um, nine, seven and uh, five. And I think they're now at, at an age where I, I'd really like to take them, take them on a march. Yeah. Chris, you've got, you mentioned to me earlier, you've got kids. Do they go? I've taken my daughter. Um, they're now at seven and 12, my two. And I, and I took my my daughter a, a few years ago. I mean, she loved it. The colour, the rainbows, the, you know, that, that, that party atmosphere, I think was was great and I think now that she's she's a couple of years older she's now at secondary school she you know she, she's learning more I think about different identities um and I think it, it, it's great now you know she's she knows she's got two uh, gay dads and I think she you know she has that outlook really of of inclusivity um and and pride is all is all part of that it's about giving us that visibility you know she can she can be there and and know that there's a whole community that that supports 
yeah. um, same-sex couples and parents yeah. and so on. Um, yeah, and that's really important, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's it's important for her. It's it's important to have that visibility for younger people as well, who know that there's there's a community there, and it it doesn't have to be, um, you know, if you're LGBTQ plus, it doesn't have to be that isolating experience that that maybe once felt like, because there's a whole community of uh, out there, and also allies who are willing to support as well. Brilliant. I think I'll definitely go next time you can it sounds great we'll get you a place on the Birmingham one next yeah, next put year me on, put me on I think part <laughs> of the issues I, I live in the middle of nowhere and <laughs> I just I hardly ever go into the big big cities other than when I'm going into work so it, it's just a question I suppose of putting it in the diary and actually making a commitment to go but yes put me down next um, next year and I'll be there in a t-shirt brilliant okay Right. Well, as we're a HR podcast, we perhaps ought to now focus a little bit more on the employment side of things. So, Charlotte, can I ask you to explain what rights the LGBT community have at work? Yes, of course. So our discrimination laws are encompassed, embedded within the Equality Act 2010. And within the Equality Act, it sets out certain protected characteristics um, and the most relevant for our podcast today are sex, sex, sexual orientation and gender reassignment. So obviously, it's important to say that the Equality Act was written in 2010. So it's pretty outdated. And so mm. some of the terminology that it uses is not the terminology that would be used today if it was written today. But but that's what we're what we're stuck with. So it's also, I think, worth mentioning that in addition to being protected on the grounds of those protected characteristics, that protection is um, from when somebody applies for a role. So they don't even have to be an employee for yeah. that protection to apply. It can apply through the application process and also once they've left. So, for example, if an employer refused to give a reference or uh, some other way in which they discriminated against an individual once they'd left an employment and then obviously all the way through their their employment from day one. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. You mentioned gender reassignment. Can you elaborate on that a little bit, please, and, and talk us through which people are covered under that particular provision? Sure. So gender reassignment applies to people who are planning to undergo, are undergoing or have undergone a process of reassigning their sex. So that's that's quite a, a wide gambit. Yeah. And it also um, there's reference to changing their. I can never say this word, so I'm going to have a go. But physiological. Or physiological. Yeah, well that's done. Great. Good. Uh, <laughs> or other, other attributes of sex. So it's a very personal process. So it, it's not a case that the person has to have had surgery or be taking hormones or be under medical supervision, nor do they have to have a gender recognition certificate. So, as I say, the definition is, is quite wide. But and I think one of the, the, the real challenges is around, and I've mentioned it, the terminology that is used and assumptions and um, preconceptions. And so we've done um, a trans guide for employers. It's aimed at managers to help them kind of decode um, and get have a bit more confidence around terminology and yeah. um, at what point someone is covered as a protected characteristic and, and things like that. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. So I'm guessing that in your career, I mean, how long have you been um, qualified, Charlotte? 20 years. 
nearly 2021. 20, That's a bit frightening, isn't it? I should admit that. It's okay on a podcast because no one can see me. So I look very young. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm older, but um, I'm guessing that you've dealt with lots of cases involving discrimination of LGBT people. Do you think there's been a sea change in attitudes and are you seeing fewer cases now than you did, say, 10 or 15 years ago? Uh, I would say yes. OK, so I would say I am seeing fewer cases. Um, I think the, the, the type of case has also changed. So if I think back 10, 15 years, the, the cases were almost more around some you know very serious ignorance and yeah. less favorable treatment it's a lot of homophobia wasn't there absolutely certainly 15 20 years ago absolutely. i mean i remember it distinctly. absolutely so yeah. very much direct discrimination yes what we tend to see now is more around inappropriate banter yeah i see, still see claims and unfortunately way too many claims where the banter of a nature that is not appropriate is 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 still experienced by a, a, a very significant number of of individuals. Mm. I think that what we have seen is it is and Christopher reference allies. I think that there is allyship is increasing, and so organisations that have embedded a good speak out policy uh, and yeah. culture where individuals feel able to speak out on behalf of uh, other individuals around banter that they witness mm -hmm. is, is, is definitely helping um, and is, is definitely helping to call out the, that inappropriate terminology that's been used or, or jokes in inverted commas yeah, yeah. Um, that, that, that we see. So I think we still have much work to do, um, but I would say that um, we, we have made significant progress. That's great to hear. And what about you, Chris? You mentioned earlier that certainly from a pride perspective, it's now seen as something that you know most people, organisations embrace. Is that something that you have experienced as well directly? And I'm also wondering, you know, what issues your network, for example, is currently working working on? It's a really, really interesting and, and good question. Um, I think attitudes have, have definitely improved over the years. I mean, I think about the the, the climate that I, sort of I grew up in in terms of schools and how different mm. that that must be now for young people um, and, and how workplaces have changed and really embraced that sense of, of inclusivity. And so there's definitely been a huge improvement, I think, in society. But I think also with the rise of social media, people are more open in society generally to talk about negative experiences that they've they've had so i think in society generally we hear more about hate crime that happens um, and i suppose that can lead to feelings of insecurity in the community and 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 more widely generally i think the important thing to say as well is that within the lgbt uh, Q space there are different experiences depending on what your identity is within that so i, I think the, that there have been a, you know massive improvements in attitudes towards um, gay men, for example, but you know other people within that that space, um, you know, uh, bi people, trans people, you know, might might say that that, that things aren't as progressed for them in society more generally. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the conversations we're having within our network, we definitely recognising that there are different experiences for for people depending. You know, we, we're seeing more. 
about people from with different characteristics you know so we're talking more about for example you know in this is this point about intersectionality so lgbt people with a disability or people of faith who are lgbt and how all of that right. works together and so we recognize that that there are those underrepresented communities i suppose is the terminology we'd use and we we want to do more to shine a light on those because we think they've you know in society that that they're groups of people that have got further to go i suppose to to reach the same level of inclusivity as uh, as other people within that that lgbt space and allyship is is hugely important for us we uh, have our rainbow lanyards which are hugely popular across the business they're not just for our lgbt colleagues they're for everybody and as soon as we get a delivery of them they're, they're sort of flying off the shelves because people are requesting them and that's so wonderful to see as as a network to see something just being embraced more widely across the business and that's just one example of something that that, that we've achieved i want to now get on to quite a difficult topic um, topic and that's what we're starting to see in an employment context at the moment and that's around conflict of belief issues. So the current focus seems to be between those people who believe for example that biological sex can't be changed and those who say that gender identity is much more important. But before we sort of go into the minutiae of that, I think it would be helpful for our listeners to understand a little bit more about belief discrimination. So can I ask you, Charlotte, is there a list, for example, of beliefs that are protected? No. Of course <laughs> there isn't. Um, Why would it be that simple? Absolutely. Unhelpfully, there isn't. There is no list. But um, to be a protected belief, it has to meet um, five tests that are set out in a legally binding decision called Ranger. Yeah. So it has to be genuinely held. It has to be more than an opinion. You can see where I'm going here, lots of legalese here. But yeah. uh, it has to be more than an opinion. It must concern a substantial aspect of human life. The belief must be cogent and serious and worthy of respect in a democratic society. Okay. So I think it's worth saying about that, the last one, the worthy of respect in a democratic society. So it, it shouldn't be incompatible with human dignity or in conflict with rights of others. And, you know, I think that's where, you know, you said it's a it's a tricky area. And I think that 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 cat, that test, that fifth test alone demonstrates why it might be quite tricky. Yeah. I mean, you said that there was lots of legalese in there. There, there definitely is. So it might be helpful if you could perhaps give some examples of beliefs that the courts have said that meet this five stage test. Yeah, I mean, there's been quite a lot in the press. So there's a, like belief in fox hunting. Um, there was the integrity of the BBC as a national broadcaster. Oh, yeah, I remember that one. Yeah, yeah. It, it, a bit random. <laughs> there's, um, you know, there's the ones around, oh, what's the word, like the Star Wars ones, uh, which is uh, people who are very, very convinced by Star Wars. And veganism, that's had a lot of um, press because of, you know, various cases that have come around around that. So, you know, it is very wide. Um, yeah, it is, isn't and it? so whereas there is that test, if if somebody genuinely holds that belief and lives by it, 
I think that's quite important. Yeah. Um, because with the veganism, you know, you, there is a range of that. You know, there's the debate around whether honey is is covered and um, bees and and there is it, it, it's that it's that being a sub, substantial aspect of human life. So you've got to live um, your beliefs. Well. Is that exactly is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. To be covered, to be covered by the protection. So in the context of conflicts of rights issues, are there any cases or, or guidance on, on what would be covered, for example? So religious beliefs, have, have there been cases involving those? Yeah, I mean there there are there are a lot a lot of cases around religious beliefs around, for example, a belief in the sanctity of same-sex marriage. Um, there's been a number of cases involving that point. There's also been cases around um, dress policies. So yeah. there's the BA case with the wearing of a of a cross, cross uh, which again got quite a lot of of press coverage. And we recently had a case, didn't we, in the EAT, which talked about gender critical beliefs being worthy of respect in a democratic society. And that's, I think, why we've got some of the current clashes that we're seeing between, you know, trans people, if you like, and those people that um, support the idea of a, of a gender identity and those people that take the the opposite view, really, that biological sex is is the key thing, and that's that's the thing that's most likely to be important. Yeah, there's a couple of cases actually. There's the you know there's the four starter case, which I'm sure a, a number you know many of our listeners will be familiar with, and then there's also the Macreth, if I pronounce that incorrectly, I'm sure, but um, okay, an EAT decision. So uh, if we look at four starter first, that obviously in that case, university and the four starter was dismissed for um, expressing gender critical views in a, uh, on social media, basically, and was successful in, in her claim, primarily for the employer. They needed to look at whether or not those views why that impacted on her role and why that impacted on her employment and and why she wasn't able to express those views in the way that she did they didn't didn't have to necessarily agree with them Mm. um but ultimately it was for starters right to be able to express those views in a in a respectful way it, you know, in her in her own time outside of outside of the workplace or inside the workplace, and we're, I'm sure we'll come on to discuss that. But it's yeah. that in a, in a respectful manner. So I think for an employer, that's a really important case because that's something that employers are are regularly having to tackle. So they may see, you know, I act for a number of employers who are particularly around social media. They they may have an employee who is expressing views that they that don't necessarily. Uh, they don't necessarily agree with, but they're expressing those views in their own time on their own social media accounts with no connection to the employer. And ultimately, the, those views, uh, they, they can't, that, that, those views are, should be respected. They have the right yeah. to, to express those views. Before we then move on to the sort of wider context, then, can we just hone in for a moment on 
views that people hold and their protected beliefs and their legitimate beliefs that are protected in law and where those come into conflict with their actual job. So not necessarily talking about colleagues getting upset with um, opposing views, but they have a fundamental difficulty with either one or more aspects of their roles because of their protected beliefs. There was a couple involving religious beliefs, which I'm sure you're familiar with, Charlotte, and one relates to a civil registrar, so birth, marriages and deaths, and they refused to conduct civil partnerships because she believed that same-sex unions were contrary to God's law. And in that case, her employer threatened to dismiss her and the case went all the way up to the Court of Appeal. And the Court of Appeal said that she hadn't been discriminated against because she held those protected beliefs. And it looked instead at the wider context. And in that case, the employer had a duty to provide services to all of the community and were justified in not allowing staff to pick and choose what aspects of their job they were prepared to do. And they specifically said that her job didn't prevent her from holding those beliefs. She could believe what she liked, but she had to do what was required. And that case went to the European Court of Human Rights. And although they acknowledged that it did interfere with her right to hold religious views, it said in the context that was justified. And a very similar decision was reached relating to a relate counsellor, so relationship counsellors. And again, due to religious beliefs, they didn't want to counsel same sex couples. They were ultimately dismissed because they wouldn't with, you know, they, they would simply refuse point blank to do it. And again, that case went up to the European Court of Human Rights. And again, they found that the employer had a duty to provide counselling services without discrimination. And the domestic courts had been entirely right to dismiss this counsellor's claim that he had been discriminated against. And I think, as you've mentioned, we've seen this play out in the in the context of employees with gender critical beliefs. And you mentioned the case of Macarith. Again, I don't know whether I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but maybe you could tell our listeners what happened in that case and what the issue was. Yeah, and that's, you know, similar issues this time relating to gender critical views. So in Macarith, there was a doctor appointed to work as a health and disabilities assessor for the DWP. Mm-hmm. He's a Christian um, and didn't um, believe that people can change their sex and didn't believe in what he referenced as transgenderism and um, gender fluidity. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the DWP had a, a, a policy which meant that all employees should refer to patients by their preferred name and pronoun. And this particular doctor refused to adopt pronouns inconsistent uh, with birth sex. So the the employer, the DDP, looked at ways it could accommodate his um, beliefs without distressing its users uh, and was partway through that process. Um, but the, the doctor resigned before the decision was made uh, and brought a claim for discrimination based on his beliefs. Um, again, it, he, he lost those claims. And the tribunal really focused on the legitimate aims of the employer to ensure that service users were treated with respect and didn't suffer discrimination. 
and that the policy was a necessary and reasonable way to achieve those aims. And I, I, I went quite slowly on that because that is really key for employers to, yeah. to, um, to focus in on. So when they have a policy, what they've got to be able to uh, establish is what the legitimate aim is and that it is a proportionate means of achieving those legitimate aims. So necessary and reasonable is another way of putting it. Proportionate means is the, the legal test um, in terms of achieving those aims. So as long as an employer can demonstrate that, that they've looked at any policy that may potentially be discriminatory towards a particular protected characteristic, if they can demonstrate that it is proportionate means of achieving a legitimate aim, then it won't be discrimination. And that's what the tribunal really focused on in this case. Yeah, yeah. So can you talk more generally about what we can take from those cases? I think you've very well described the issue about justification. So if they've got a policy that's requiring staff to do X, Y or Z, then they've got to be able to justify it and the sorts of things that the courts will take into consideration. But can you sort of expand upon that a little bit and talk about, you know, the other considerations that tribunals will will look at? Yeah, I think probably the first thing is that that rights aren't absolute. So I think an employer needs to be open minded, needs to take into consideration the, the views of all its employees and to, to consider that it may not uh, agree with those views and, the, and and some of the views may not sit within its own ED&I um, values and yeah. policies um, but it's important that, that they are taken into consideration but they can be qualified and that comes back to the point that I've just made around justification so mm -hmm. if there is a policy which potentially puts uh, an employee at a disadvantage or um, is, is creating problems within the workplace, then the employer should look at the justification and its legitimate aims and really look to what evidence it's relying on in support of that proportionality and whether or not there is another way. Like, for example, with the case we were just talking about, the DWP were looking into ways in which they could accommodate the beliefs without distressing its users. And again, I, I, that was a really important point for the, the tribunal to take into consideration. And yeah. so I think I think it is about, you know, always for me, it's about coming back to respect and perhaps employers not, not necessarily jumping to having a strict policy or a very definite response before going through that process of justification um, yeah. and that, that communication. Yeah, so I think the cases that we've looked at all went in a particular direction, didn't they? And I think it is much easier generally for employers to be able to justify those types of policies where there is a conflict between what individuals believe and what services they're actually providing. I think it's much more difficult for employers where you've got an issue between employers that are holding competing beliefs, if you like, 
that are both equally valid and protected. And there were, a, there's been a few cases on this. I've, I've picked out a, a just three just to mention today, but I don't know if you remember the Christian guy who worked for a housing association. And this was at the time when Parliament were debating about um, gay marriage. And he was a Christian and he put something on his Facebook page, which basically said that he disapproved of gay marriage. That was it. OK, his colleagues complained and he was demoted. Suffered quite a significant pay cut and the High Court, it was a, a breach of contract claim, so it wasn't brought in the tribunal, it was brought in the High Court. And they said that his comments were inoffensive and the employer was wrong to treat that as a disciplinary issue, even though it had the potential to upset people who held deeply felt opposing views and that there was no reputational damage to the employer, real or perceived. You mentioned Mayor Forstater's case. I don't really need to go into that one again, but there was a, another case involving broadly gender critical beliefs, but those that were based in someone's Christian beliefs last week that went to the Employment Appeals Tribunal, and that involved a lady who worked at a school and in her own time, she forwarded a post on her Facebook page that was extremely critical of the government's approach to teaching relationships in primary school, which had a focus on gender. OK, and she said in this post that it was brainwashing our children. It was suppressing Christianity. OK. That post was seen by a parent and a, that parent brought it to the school's attention and she was ultimately dismissed on the basis that she'd expressed herself in a way that suggested that she was both homophobic and transphobic. That case went up to the Employment Appeals Tribunal and they've sent it back down actually to be re-evaluated by the tribunal. But one of the things that I took from that case is they said that labelling people in this way really isn't helpful. Um, it means different things to different people. And they also um, the, made the point that employees are entitled to hold and express views on controversial matters of public interest. You know, we can't anaesthetise people again about against being upset. People have you know, the right to free speech and to be able to express views, albeit in a in a moderate way. So, you know, it's a really tricky situation for employers. So, as I've said, on the one hand, you've got to recognise that employees have the right to believe what they want and absolutely nothing anybody can do to shift that. And in some cases, as you've explained, those beliefs will actually be protected in law. So can I ask you, Charlotte, based on the sort of stuff that we've looked at and the cases that we've already gone through, what advice would you give to an employer who is faced with colleagues or for perhaps other people from outside of their organisation that bring posts, and it's generally social media posts these days, to their attention, and they say, this person isn't a fit person to work in your, your workplace, they ought to be sacked. Yeah, and it happens all the time. We get asked this question a lot. And I think that um, the first thing is don't, don't have that knee-jerk reaction. Yeah. Because there is no hierarchy of rights. So it, it, as you say, 
people are allowed to ha have their own, we're a democratic society, people are allowed to hold their own views and um, not everyone will have the same view and people will get upset by opposing views. Yeah. That doesn't have anything to do with someone's employment. That's the bottom line. And yeah. unless it is bringing the organisation into disrepute or if you've got uh, half half of a, a workforce saying that they're going to resign, um, so it would seriously dis disrupt the workplace, unless you've got one of those two situations, which is unusual, mm. uh, highly unusual, then it is not an employment matter. So I think that's that's the you know a lot of employers don't don't think that, and so I think that's really important to say at the outset. Now, obviously, employers shouldn't allow staff to bully others. So yeah. it, it does depend if it's on an in you know if it's on a social media account not connected with work, then that that's one thing. If it is targeted or directed at a colleague, that is quite another. And that would bring it into the employment remit and could fall into bullying uh, behaviour or discriminatory behaviour. There is nothing uh, to stop an employer talking about tolerance and moderate language. And there is uh, all, all employers um, should have in place, if they haven't already, EDI training and support for employees to encourage inclusivity again that that is something that that an employer can do mm -hmm. um and is within their control but you know ultimately if if there are two if there is a disagreement within the workplace within two, two between two individuals over views then also they can agree to disagree okay yeah. so it doesn't you know you don't have it, it has to be a situation where people uh, are asked to approach topics and discussions in a respectful manner so um, so do not create that hostile environment and trip into either harassment or or bullying. So yeah. it's about agreeing to disagree and perhaps that it is no longer a topic to be discussed within the workplace if if the, if they can't be discussed in that respectful way. That's interesting, actually. And that leads me very nicely into my next question. So we started the podcast by talking about inclusion. And one way organisations try and em embrace this is through a bring your whole self to work policy. And I read something last year that was written by Forstater after she succeeded with her claim. And she was very critical of that approach. And she said that in her view, it prioritises the expression of certain but not all personal beliefs. And she suggested that employers would be better placed to have a bring your professional self to work policy, sort of encouraging service, resilience, courtesy and tolerance of others. And I'd be really interested in exploring your views on that. Can I start with you, please, Chris? Have you thought about that as an issue? That's a, that's a really interesting thought piece, isn't it? I think, I mean, bringing your whole self to work policy, you know, it, it sounds so positive, doesn't it? I mean, for a mm -hmm. long time, you think about LGBT people, people in the closet, people weren't bringing their whole selves to work. They were yeah. having to construct narratives around what they did at the weekend or who who they went on holiday with because they didn't want to out themselves in the workplace and and yeah, bringing your whole self to work means that you can just forget all of that put all that to one side just you know be who you are and the benefit for the employer of course would be more productive workforce happier workforce yeah um and and so on so 
um, you know, I still like that idea of bring your whole self to work, but I think that what what those comments are really getting at is workplace culture, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. I think employers can do there's so much that can be done to build a culture where we can be respectful. I mean, I don't disagree with any of those descriptors that you've used there, resilience, courtesy, tolerance of others. I mean, those are things that, you know, all good employers would want to have. And I think one of the ways that that we do that with our networks is, you know, yes, we have an LGBTQ plus network, but we have networks for for other people as well. So, you know, we we have a group that that deals with uh, with gender, with age, mm. uh, social mobility, uh, race, religion, and and so on. And actually, what gives me a lot of hope is that a lot of our network groups we're working together to to confront issues, or we recognise that actually we have an awful lot in common, yeah. um, and a lot of issues that we want to address collectively. I suppose we wanted to think about something like uh, bullying in the workplace, for example. You know, that's not just something that 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 could potentially impact a particular group of people. You know, we're we're all vulnerable to that. So let's address mm. that collectively mm. and, and deal with it together and I think in that way we are building that culture of of um, resilience and, and tolerance towards others um, and you know we, we have to be mindful of the people that are around us and, and understand that that we don't all share the same views and and in many ways that that you know it sounds like a cliche but that is what gives us you know what makes our, our our society you know such an interesting and colourful place to be because there is that variety of of backgrounds and and thoughts, beliefs, opinions, um, and we we have to find a way to to all work together. Yeah, yeah, it's, it goes back, doesn't it, to the um, Joe Cox quote: "More in common than divides us." Absolutely, I, I fully you know endorse that. But, you know, it's not, not not to say that any of this is easy to deal with or, or navigate. Um, but I think if we can hold those core values close to us, then you know, that, that's got to be a really important starting point for all of us. Right. Charlotte, do you have a view on that? Yeah, I think um, maybe your whole professional self. So uh, somewhere in between. I think I went to a Harry Styles concert recently. It was really positive experience because... He, he talks very much about being yourself and being able to bring yourself to his concerts. And very much that was that was the case. It was a very inclusive experience. And I think I, I, I agree with Chris that I think that it, the whole self to work is a really positive, important message. And I'm not I, I wouldn't want to qualify that too much. So Great. I, I think it's uh, I think it's really important. Thank you both. Well, I think we've covered some of this, but can I finish by asking you both to tell me what you value most about working in an inclusive workplace? Chris, do you want to go first? Sure. I think it's the the ability to to come to the workplace, know that you can bring in your perspective, your background experiences to the job that you've got to do, to your clients, to help shape decisions, policies. And, and know that that will be listened to and taken into account alongside everybody else um, as well. And I think in that way, you know, you feel part of the organisation that you belong to because you, you've you helped to build it. Yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. How about you, Charlotte? I think it, it's about my own core values. I think mm-hmm. um, I, I working in an inclusive workplace is incredibly important to me. 
um, because I feel very strongly that everyone should be able to bring their whole self to work and everyone should be respected. And and being, you know, I feel very privileged to work at IM, which which you you feel that inclusivity in in every day in, mm-hmm. in in engaging with different teams and speaking to different individuals and different people. So I, I think it's I think it as I say it's it strikes with my own values and that's really important. That's really good to hear. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thanks, Thank you. Joe. Before we go, can I remind our listeners that we have prepared a guide to trans rights in the workplace. It's free of charge and you can access it via our website, which is www.erwinmitchell.com. Or you can get in touch with me and I'll get a copy over to you. And that's it for today. If you want to hear more about our latest employment law updates alongside expert commentary, tune in in a fortnight. Thanks for listening.